0: So, recap in the last episode Mark brought up that we should look into we can all pick any one thing that we want to implement in our house to save energy, right? And from there, we had about a week to do it, so I dug into it yesterday and I don't you know Mark looked at his and Nick maybe didn't do his, but it was enlightening. It was enlightening, so I'm looking forward to talking about it our energy conservation measure if you want to call it for our homes so mark i guess i'll let you start with yours so let me preface my selection with a little bit of
1: background for the energy engineers and uh, you know folks on the on the that are listening our house was built in 1852 the exterior and interior walls are solid brick exterior walls are five bricks thick interior walls are three bricks thick So there's very little opportunity for insulation on the outside walls. The windows are almost all the original windows, which were uh, float glass. And we've had uh, custom storm windows made and put on. So the exterior of the house is about as close to insulated and sealed as we can get it without really changing the Architectural features of the house, which we're not really ready to do. Uh, we also have geothermal heating and cooling with uh, a combination water furnace heating cooling system that provides hot water for radiant heat and cold water for uh, air cell high high velocity low temperature cooling systems. So when I started to look at this, the options. We're fairly limited based on the architectural features, but one of the things that we have identified over the over the last few years is that the attic space is hot. so I said, I need to ventilate that attic space looked online, and you can get a solar powered uh, attic ventilator, about six hundred cfm to ventilate the attic based on relative humidity and temperature of the attic space, and so we have Uh, That thing ordered and project underway, contractor on notice.
0: What do you, like, so how much does that cost to, to buy it?
1: To buy it is, uh, is uh, $308.99 on Amazon. Nice. Yeah. And it'll probably be another 250 bucks to install. It comes with a flange on it. So it uh, slides right under the shingles. You take a couple shingles off, caulk it down and oh, okay uh, put the shingles back on and done. yeah this is not a gable fan. it actually fits right into the roof just like a, a passive. We have five passive act, uh, vents on the roof now plus the ridge vent, but it it just doesn't seem to keep it cool and uh, if I can if I can reduce the attic temperature by you know maybe 20 30 degrees, that would be huge because it, it's a shingle roof, not a metal yeah. roof. And it will increase the lifespan of the roof and hopefully decrease the load on my geothermal cooling.
2: And you think you'll get that big of a temperature drop from
1: that? I know I will. Um, the, just, so we have nine inches of, of fiberglass insulation in the ceiling now. And using the FLIR infrared thermo- thermographic camera, there are places where the ceiling that is the ceiling of the house get up to 79 80 degrees so it's hot
0: yeah i believe it. i kind of have the same issue i after i heard you say that i'm like damn i probably need one of those too so why aren't your ridge vents functioning then properly
1: well i think they are nick i it's not that you depend on the thermal difference between the attic and the yep uh, and the exterior for convection through the, rid- from the eaves to the ridge vent. So that has to be a difference before we even start to ventilate. So the the active ventilation will just reduce that temperature a little more. I don't think it's that they're not functioning. I think it's that they are.
0: Well, it's just so freaking hot are. up there. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine on a hundred degree day, it's a 100- hundred Whatever twenty up there, yeah. So yeah, so there's not
2: not a lot of shade on the house or anything. Just having direct shade sun. at
1: the there's shade at the west end, but the east end is direct sunlight. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. Yep. An all solar powered fan, no
2: wiring up there. That's great. No wiring.
1: Nope. Cut the roof, stick it in. Away you go. Now, one of the downfalls. It is all solar. It will only run at night, but um conjecturing that it will run a sufficient amount during the day to reduce the temperature and and, you know it'll be cooler when the sun does go down yeah you know the other thing architecturally talking about the house being as much brick as it is it's a huge thermal flywheel i mean you know the sun beats on the brick all Mm. day it's like heating up a rock
0: yep Uh, which is important when they're heating with wood in the 1800s right yeah right there are seven fireplaces do do what you want yeah Yeah. yep it's it's like a huge I think it's called the Trome wall right that's like old architecture they did that for a reason that's right yeah which is awesome I think but yeah now it kind of hurts you a little bit because you have modern technology and we don't need that huge flywall wall effect yeah and actually the you know the way the house is situated in the
1: uh, during the original construction, it was constructed so that you could open up the two end doors and basically it would be flow through ventilation from the prevailing wind. So that was the, the predominant cooling at the time of original construction. Now, obviously, you know, we don't want to ventilate when we're trying to cool a place. So.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing what passive things they did and you can do for a house if you plant it in. It's crazy. You know, the, the trome wall and the direction for cross, I mean, there's so much you can do.
2: Well, and back then, it probably was more of a question of keeping heat inside the house. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to removing yep. it, where I think now yep. we probably have more of that issue, Mark, like you're talking about getting heat out of your house. I was just kind of appreciating yesterday, the we have tall trees around our house. And while it does limit the sun that comes through, you know, as far as long durations, you know, there is a period during the day when the sun is high that the yard is all filtered upon and everything, but then it does keep it very cool. Cause we don't have that heat, that sun, you know, onto the house, you know, after three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, I really appreciate that, especially with us replacing, uh, where there's two heat pumps, we have, we had old ones before up till a couple of years ago, and we did one one year, and then a couple of years later, and wow, what a difference in the elect- electricity bills that was! I'm still kind of amazed when, you know, we'll have a month like this, and I'll get the bill and say, "Wow, that's completely reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, that's a really good deal I got yeah. for keeping us cool." Night and day, yeah, it's unreal. It really is. Are they ground source or air source heat pumps? Oh no, just typical air source. Yeah. Wow. They they hammer along, and you know they don't come on that often. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I said, the shade helps a lot too, and uh, a lot of it's occupant education in my home. I find. Oh, I agree. (laughs) Yes, I agree completely. uh, I guess that would be my next project. Would be, but I don't know. I think I've talked about this enough. That they they the occupants (laughs) should understand some of the basics of energy conservation, but you know it's a continual education process.
0: So I had a lot of fun yesterday. I I thought after Mark brought this up, I was like, you know, perfect. My house it was built in 1890. It's got single pane windows. It's like this is this is easy for me. I was like, I'm going to do double pane windows. So I just I you know looked on the average cost to purchase and get a window installed, counted how many windows I had, you know, (laughs) okay, now it's going to cost me, I don't know, we'll say 12 grand to do my windows. So I went, did the, it wasn't a bin hour analysis, but I took the heating degree days and cooling degree days for each month and looked at my utility bills to find out how much cost per KW and CCF and natural gas, found my um, avoidance if I switched to double pane windows. Great. Calced it out. 52 year payback. So I was like, well, that's dumb. Guess I'm not doing windows ever. So I was very disappointed. <laughs> so I, what were you thinking? You would come in around. I don't know. I was hoping I'd get like a 14 or 15 year payback. I've never, I've never looked into how much windows costs and how much they say, like, you know, I, I get it, but I've never like looked at it as, as a whole house, what it would save me. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. 52 year payback. I'm like, what? So I was like, okay, there's, you know what? That's fine. I got an 80% efficient furnace. I might as well at least get a 95. That'll save me some money. Did the same thing. That was an 11 year payback with me installing it myself. Wow. So I was like, well, that kind of sucks too. So then I pondered it for a while. And, you know, it's funny you bring up like occupant <laughs> education because I was like, maybe I'll do LED lights. I'm like, nope. Everyone here shuts the lights off when they're not our lights are barely on, you know, between. Well, in the winter time it's a little different, but you get your three hours of a few lights on in the evening and then everything's off. Nothing's left on during the day. Very good. Um, you know, we're good. Nobody wastes water. I was pretty proud of everyone that I live with. So I was like, what in the hell am I going to do? So I, d- I opted if I was going to do something, I would get a nest learning thermostat.
2: Oh, interesting.
0: And okay, so run through the. Did you do an equivalent analysis on that? Well, I didn't, but (laughs) according to the internet, on average, you can save about a hundred bucks a year from you know just your daily setbacks of it learning when you're there and when when you're not, and when it can turn down or you know turn down the heat and cooling. So it costs about two hundred fifty bucks. If I can save 100 bucks a year, you know, there's my two and a year, two and a half year payback. Life is good, and it's funny. Mark brought up the point. Well, don't you already have a programmable thermostat? Yes, we do. Yes, we actually already put in a pretty aggressive setback on our heating for during the day, right? But I have found if one person is home and they're cold, and they turn it up. It's going to hold at whatever you turn it up to, 72, 73, 74. So if I had a guess, 60, 70% of the time, it's not doing its job. So I thought the nest was, be- was cool because it should automatically do that and it should kind of mitigate someone gets cold to turning the heat up, you know, it'll, it will self-learn. So that was my, my energy saving method of choice.
1: But what's what will be your strategy for monitoring uh, performance? So you, you know that uh, the nest is doing its thing and setting everything back to the standard temperature after someone goes through either their need for heating or cooling beyond what the set point is.
0: Uh, monitoring performance isn't like avoidance. How much am I saving? No,
1: no, I mean how how will you know this thing's working?
0: Oh. Well, it looks like they have a fancy little app and it should tell me everything exactly what good. it does. So, good. I thought that was pretty neat. I can, and you know, it's Wi Fi, so I could change it from wherever I am whenever I want it. But yeah, it, it should like kind of internally track what it does, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, I have yeah. a, your standard programmable thermostat. And like I said, we're like, oh, we're going to save more energy, we're going to be pretty aggressive on our setbacks during the day because nobody's home and then somebody ends up being home. They're like this sucks. I'm cold. Turns it up to 74 and then it stays there forever. So or till the next day or whatever.
2: So I'm confused though. So the Nest thermostat
0: knows when somebody's there and they're cold or hot? No, no. It knows when somebody's there though and I I think the the Nest will at least if if I set it to 74, I'm assuming it will do that for a period of time and then if they leave the house again it'll know and it'll set it back down you know what i mean whereas if somebody bounced in to do something they were cold set it up it'll hold there for the rest of the day so just it seems like a a good application of technology and iot and all that good stuff to find out when people are home it's also scary to think that it knows when clayton's home but i thought it'd be pretty useful I don't know, Clayton, I'm skeptical, but I'm a curmudgeon at heart sometimes
2: when it comes to these things, but I do find it interesting. You know, you looked at the the things you know were a need in your facility. The windows are probably more than a heating and cooling issue, mm-hmm. draftiness, I don't know, security, whatever. I am curious why both you guys own homes that are about 100 years older than my home. <laughs> that's fine. So, but so, yeah, you looked at all the the payback and the economics of it, and then you ended up with the thermostat, but you didn't do the same type of rigor on that analysis, which I was kind of curious about because somebody was there to provide you with the benefits or at least something that made sense to you. I mean, I know you're not a dumb guy, but you looked at it and probably said, okay, well that they're not saying I'm going to save a thousand dollars a year. That would yeah, be realistic,
0: right? Well, I would. I think to do to do that, I would have had to get into an hourly analysis and probably you know go through and do my setbacks and all that stuff. And I just didn't have that structure built into my previous economic analysis for the windows and furnace. So,
2: but it raises the good point about the the magnitude of you know investment and savings and how much effort you're going to put into it. To and I think the same translates to whether it's your your your
0: personal home or you're the manager of a, of a campus or something. Yeah. Yeah. I was, and you know, like we we had the conversation before though. Everyone is pretty conscious of energy consumption at our house. So, I mean, I'm looking at my utility bills and I'm like, yeah, I hate paying it every month, but I'm like, it's not ridiculous. I don't know. I'm like, it kind of, You know, I don't want to say it is what it is, but unless I want to be cold all the time, kind of is what it is. No one's leaving windows open and running the furnace and setting it to 78, you know, so.
1: Well, so I'll comment on that, though. But if if you travel, if you've ever been overseas, Europe, uh, we were in New Zealand years ago. Our uh, energy cost is extraordinarily low. Our cost per unit, natural gas. Uh, gasoline, electricity, all of it. So, things that don't make sense for us as a country uh, do make sense everywhere else. If you look at uh, what happens, you know, it was interesting when we were in New Zealand. I don't know how you guys are, but lunchtime, maybe I open the fridge and ponder what's in it. Maybe a minute. That is not how it works in, in, in New Zealand when dinner prep was happening their fridge would open once everything came out and the door was closed within 15 seconds and remained closed until it was time to put everything back in just because utility costs are that high and the you know the rates are punitive for waste you don't waste the, you know they're on the north island largest power is by uh, volcanic geothermal which creates steam and turns a turbine but that power is limited distributions limited So we as a country, we as a nation enjoy such low rates because we're, you know, not, I don't want to go down the political road, but we have extraordinarily, extraordinarily high levels of natural resources that we exploit to our financial benefit.
2: Oh, and the infrastructure to adapt to that too, and to bring everything together. So that's a big part of it as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting about that, that whole mindset of just kind you know, opening the fridge and shutting it and how, how it seems like that was more of my grandparents' uh, generation as well. I mean, I grew up thinking that a light bulb was perhaps one of the most expensive devices you could possibly operate, <laughs> right? <laughs> I had no idea because it was just, you know, it just... I wouldn't say drilled, but reinforce, you know, turn off the lights when you're not in a room. And I always thought it was because of, of cost. And maybe back then it was because I don't know. I know with my grandparents, even making a long distance phone call at a certain time was, you know, pretty expensive, I think. So that's crazy. That, that mindset has definitely changed. And I know when My children ask me about the big deal with turning off the lights and they ask, well, how expensive is it? I said, it's, it's, it's nothing, you know, but it's not about that. It's about, at least to me, it's about them understanding these are limited resources and the same with water. Mm -hmm. Water is dirt cheap now too. You don't think about it. I try to help them understand the cost to heat water is pretty expensive Right, and that would be probably I think where I would focus if I had to really think about my utility expenses here at the home would be that because we have propane just for cooking, which is really nothing, and uh, water heating, which is the huge one. So, you know that uh... probably a considerable expense, you know, compared to electricity to run
0: heat pumps and lights and all that. I looked at that too. It's kind of funny you bring that up. I I was like, okay, you know, maybe I'll do hot water. So it, obviously in the winter time or in the shoulder months, my gas bill goes up because I'm heating. So in August, my gas bill is purely water heating, right? Mm. Fifteen dollars a month. I'm like, how how can I justify changing anything? I don't know. That is tough. You're right. I'm like, fifteen dollars a month for four people to use high water a whole month i'm like what can i do wait till it breaks and get a new one I'm not going right. to do anything i don't know so but no those are those are completely appropriate decisions to make i think
2: you have limited you know resources financially limited amount of time so and i think the same as you've seen the same expressed with you know customers and clients you go into their buildings and some things you would think were a no brainer to do But they've got bigger, they've got a longer list of no brainers that they need to do. So, you you know, items you come up with might come down the list. It's just not important for one reason or another, or it doesn't have the impact. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. It it is, there is, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at them, Nick or Clayton, uh, heat recovery that goes on your uh, drain so that when people are showering or using hot water or using a dishwasher, it actually preheats incoming water to the to The uh, hot water heater.
0: Yep. I've seen I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is neat You well, know what I was for a retrofit, but you know what I was gonna buy I'm completely joking one of those little turbines that go in your your water line So when I'm running the water, I'm making electricity That's not dumb <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, uh, well. there's, there's a million things I mean think about if you were building a new home, <laughs> you know, the, the, the type of things that you would incorporate, I mean, that's a whole different animal based on, you know, living in older homes. There's certainly a lot of things I would do differently. And I'd probably start with having a big impact on the siting of your your building, you know, because it has such an impact mm-hmm. uh, with wind and, and solar load and all that. And uh, I think that can, and definitely using the earth as far as a uh, ground source. I think makes a lot of sense, but that is tough in a, in a retrofit, but
0: it can be done, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, and not to keep us, obviously we're going to dive into our podcast, the actual part of it, but I was impressed. Like I, I've never had much experience with metal roofing, but compared to asphalt roofing, how much heat it reflects back to the earth as compared to absorbing it to your attic, that was insane too how you can even have a black metal roof and you can touch it on a 95 degree day and not burn yourself or, you know, it, there's a lot you can do. It's impressive. interesting. Hmm. You know, metal siding, probably much cooler too. It doesn't absorb heat. I mean, your asphalt roof is just a giant heat sink. It was I was impressed. I was like, wow, I should do a metal roof on my house when I need a roof because not only is it less, they last longer theoretically, Probably would save me some energy. So, next project. No, there's, there's always another there's project. Too many projects, too many. But, alrighty, guys, I think we should dive into our topic of discussion for the podcast now that we went on that little journey of energy conservation in the household. Obviously, you've already been listening, guys, but welcome to the VS Energy Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. So today's podcast episode, we will be discussing the site walkthrough and what to look for. So this is kind of to clarify it up. There's a multiple levels of energy audits. If, if you're not familiar, you know, ASHRAE level one, two and three. And this is more geared to, I guess, what you would consider your level one energy audit, your first site walkthrough, you know, if I'm if I'm an energy auditor, and I'm going through a facility for the first time. What do I want? What do I need? What am I looking for? So we're just going to cover that process in in detail today. And I, I think the first thing to start with would be what what information do I need to know before I arrive on site? And obviously, it really depends on the facility and what they do. If it's commercial, you know, industrial, what have you, but I would generally like a floor plan, um, P and I D drawings, if that does exist in the facility if it's, uh, you know, industrial. Uh, and informa- general information on, you know, when is the facility in operation? Is it 24-7, eight hours a day? You know, do you stuff like that. What else do you guys have to add to that? I I think before I even
1: get to the point where I want peanut ID drawings or a floor plan, uh, I would like to see two years of utility bills. Mm-hmm. Yep, And copies of any uh, previous energy audits or studies or even a project list that has been developed by the facility, whether it's commercial, industrial, educational, doesn't matter. But definitely two years of the utility bills.
2: It is such a long list in my opinion of what you could need and could ask for. And I'm just kind of going in my mind through my experience with auditing and I mean, I will say this, I've never, when you guys start talking about level one, level two, level three, I've never referred to any type of audit that I've been a part of in those ASHRAE terms. And nobody's even asked me, you know, what type of audit it is. It's usually, it's either your first preliminary audit or it's follow-up audits and obviously getting deeper into complexity and everything. But I do remember early on uh, when I got a kind of a initial handle on everything I'd need to look at, that it became a long laundry list of this is what I would like before I even show up. And then you kind of learn that, well, depending on the facility, you maybe not, you don't need that much. And early on, I did a lot of K through 12 auditing. And sometimes, you know, if you got a floor plan, that was pretty good. And then utility bills might show up sometime down the road as much as you'd want them before you showed up there. So I think it can be quite different as far as drawings and access to them. I think the access part is more important than having them prepare everything for you in advance. But again, I don't know, from my perspective, it's not too clear on this is exactly the type of
0: information you should have before you even step foot in the building. You, do you go into it kind of assuming, okay, obviously it depends on the facility. You, you probably build your own generalizations or, assumptions on what some energy ECMs would be energy conservation measures before you even get on site. Like, Oh, this is a school. A lot of schools typically do this, this, and this, and I can save, we can do, you know, this, this, and this to save them money. I assume if you've been to a few of them, they're all extremely similar in how they operate. Well, yeah, similar
2: structure and similar equipment with, with different, you know, vertical markets like that. But yeah. And that would be one of the, I guess, more simplified examples but definitely gets more complicated when you get into industrial or mm-hmm. even healthcare and laboratories
1: well i think nick especially when you start to develop projects for escos that sets the stage for a whole different level of detail doing an investment investment grade audit which is right. somewhere you know like a ashrae 2 plus maybe 3 yep that Requires enough certainty of the results to be able to justify investment and in the economic requirements of the ESCO and and the uh, building owner.
0: No, completely agree. Yeah, and at that point, you've right, you've been through the facility maybe multiple times, and you you've gone through what we're talking about today already. So, but the bottom line, I guess, I
2: would say, I do before I would go into a facility, what I would like to do is have as much information as possible, right? So if you do have utility information that you can look through in advance and identify areas that you want to focus on areas that seem, you know, excessively high compared to benchmarks that you have or You know, just it ranges a lot, and it comes down to I guess experience and knowing I guess what to look at from utility bills. But you can maybe be able to target what areas you want to focus on. Obviously, you know, I don't know. In my mind right now, I have a big you know picture of like a campus, you know, a university Mm -hmm. or something. A lot of different buildings going on there. But I mean, I would like to know as much as I can before I go there, so I'm not wasting a lot of time asking. You know what's building 12 over here you know if i have that list of what the buildings are obviously floor plans to help orient uh yourself then that definitely gives you an advantage and able to then you know talk more in detail about what's going on in the facilities
0: so do you guys care about like a eui or energy use index or eci energy cost index prior to arriving on site do you want to know is this site operating at a higher cost or higher use than average sites in its same category. I would
2: think that's very important to understand that if they do, if there is some ranking available like that, with the understanding that all, you know, places are different. Right. Whether it's utility costs or special or utility rates or special uh, use of the buildings and how they operate them, but definitely information on, 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 as well on how they're operating the buildings. You know, if they have a standard temperature set points they like to maintain, when the buildings are occupied, when
0: they open them up, things like that are all very important. So covering that, obviously there's a little variance in opinion on what you need and what you want before you get on site, but that's fine. Everyone operates differently. Once you get on site, what tools do you generally have or bring? I mean, to me, your first walkthrough is is that you know I'm obviously you're going to have a, a notepad, maybe some basic tools, a FLIR, thermal imaging camera, uh, ultrasonic leak detector, if it's an industrial facility with compressed air, and you know that before you get on site. You got your site plans. like to me, i'm I'm operating pretty lightweight on my first walkthrough.
1: I, I would go one step back, especially with industrials into anyone who's ever audited industrial facilities. The, the first thing you have to check before you even walk out to your car is what are the PPE requirements for the site?
0: Yeah, that's true. I completely rushed right past that. Yes.
1: Well, and I, and I will tell you, I've been to many, many walkthroughs, including walkthroughs where there were competitors and, and things like that. And there's not anything that looks weaker than showing up on a job site in your uh, suit and tie and then have the, uh, Owner hand you the loner safety glasses, hard hat, vest, and yep. even shoe coverings. Yep. And then you're clocking around all day with your with your uh, safety shoes. No, on.
0: you're right. Yeah, I completely <laughs> took that for granted as like you show up ready to go. But yeah, you gotta you gotta know where you're going and what you need on that regard. Completely. Yes.
2: So, what's the most extensive PPE? equipment that you've had to carry, Mark,
1: for an initial walkthrough? For an initial walkthrough, it's it's basically the standards, uh, safety toe boots, sometimes long sleeve shirts and or flame retardant clothing, hard hat, safety glasses, hearing protection. And to all the young people, I cannot overemphasize the requirement for hearing protection. I spent the better part of the first half of my life not using hearing protection as I should have. And and, uh, hearing degradation when it occurs is a challenge. And probably in the next couple of years, I'll be wearing hearing aids. But now, especially with electronic hearing protection, you can get hearing uh, amplification and suppression in pretty cost-effective electronics that uh, you can take on a site, carry on a conversation very easily and protect your hearing from harsh or damaging noise
0: you know it's funny i was just going to say how much i hate wearing hearing protection on a, a walk through it's like a i can't think just because everything's muffled then you're screaming to the person next to you trying to ask a question oh but you're right though the, you know with modern technology the the headset that i use when i'm you know shooting firearms amplifies talking and and muffles all a loud background noise so something like that would be pretty awesome to have for a uh, keeping your carry bag for your walkthrough oh i agree mark at a
2: minimum you know every person that's out in facility should have at a minimum those little you know rubber ear inserts and obviously safety glasses but yeah the ears are very critical you know you might spend you might walk into a chiller room or plant and you, know, you can deal with the noise but if you're in there for an hour that takes a serious toll on that and it's long-term the hearing and uh yeah you always think you're invincible when you're when you're younger so that and safety glasses i would think regardless of what type of facility because you're poking your head in places and looking at things and uh those are some uh accidents or incidents that are that can be difficult to recover from
0: yeah safety glasses is one thing that i uh, I know what you want to call it, matured very quickly on with, you know, growing up as a younger guy, I was like, ah, well, I don't need safety glasses. Nothing's going to happen now. I, I'll wear them for anything. I'm like, yeah. it's So easy right. to put them on because if I get hit in the eye and I lose vision out of one eye, that's that's you're not coming back from that. I'll wear them for anything now. I don't care. I keep a pair of safety glasses everywhere around the house, in the garage. I'm like, put them on for whatever. It's totally mine weird. right now. <laughs> well, what, you think that I mean that, that's
1: not even a joke because I you know I I always have uh reading glasses so I ordered I don't know six sets of my level magnification safety glasses they're bifocals yeah I put them on in the morning and they have a lanyard around my neck and I, I use them all day it, it just doesn't matter where I go what I do if I have to go to a meeting obviously I change into some less uh geeky looking uh, glasses but Mm -hmm. otherwise i just i have them with me all the time yeah yeah we're big fans of eyes here
2: all the listeners here eyes and ears are very important yeah right no i i I can't disagree at all so can i back up one second on the information required before arriving on site i know we can get into you know a long list of what you could have but Mark, is there anything that would be a bare minimum to you if somebody wanted you to come take a look, preliminary run through, and they said, "What is the bare minimum you need, Mark, to
1: come here?" Would there be a list? Uh yeah, and uh, and Nick, I guess I w- I kind of took some exception to your statement about the utility bills because, in my mind, you know, and I tell everybody this. The only thing that you have in your life that is valuable, the single most valuable thing that you own that is valuable is your time. So if you let somebody take advantage of your time or waste your time, it's not their fault it's your fault. So in my from my perspective, if someone can't get me together 2 years of the utility bills, I am not starting the truck. That is an absolute essential along with some electronic copy of the floor plan so at a minimum i can see okay here's how big the building is i can do my own calculation what's the energy utilization index what's the energy cost index is the building you know summer or winter peaking just a, and we have a list of the mechanical equipment give us a list of your major mechanical equipment uh, including air compressors, boilers, chillers, air handling equipment, et cetera, so that we can have a reasonable picture of what we would specifically like to look at during the time that we're on site. Those are big on my list that if, if there's a lack of commitment on the part of whoever wants the audit at the level where they can't can't get together two years of the utility bills, I don't need to go. Because they're <clears throat> they're either performing the audit to meet some administrative or regulatory requirement for an audit, and some of those might be like a large scale boiler MACT study, which is boiler minimum acceptable control technology, which means that when you have large enough boilers, you have to get those performed and submitted to the uh, to the government. But I I really am. Uh, you know, if I don't, if I don't see two years of utility bills, uh, that's, that's my indicator that this isn't really uh th- there's not that high level of interest nor sense of urgency regarding this audit.
0: No, I definitely see that. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I I can imagine you get, I don't know what you'd call them in that industry, tire kickers a lot saying, yeah, come, you know, take your time, check this place out, see what's going on doesn't cost give us you, anything but yeah, it costs a you a lot bunch of, time. of ideas sure yeah. yeah so I'll walk that back again and
1: usually this starts with either a phone or internet inquiry mm-hmm. and generally I I try and find out who is requesting this and what their what their requirements are and and the requirements for an energy audit usually come down to someone's making me do it and therefore I have to, or there's a genuine and, and willful intent to reduce operating costs through reasonably, reasonably certain investment. And at that point, you, you find the right person, and they will ask three questions. And it always revolves around, how much can I save? How soon can it happen? And how certain are you? And certainty is a function of how detailed and, and valid the audit and the calculations that follow the audit actually are. So I know we'll talk about this in, in upcoming podcasts, but in general, you know, Nick, to your question, let's find out who really wants this audit. Is it the person's boss or boss's boss? And if so, let's have a five-minute conversation about what exactly are you looking for? Because... You know, VS Energy is a for-profit entity, not a not-for-profit entity. And we've gone to many, many sites and, well, we want an energy audit. This obviously when I was younger. Oh, well, okay, it'll be this much. Well, the utility company will do it free. Okay. Um, if the utility company will do it free, there has to be a reason that you've contacted us. Either you're not sure that you'll get the level of quality and or certainty that you want out of the audit, or you want us to supplement their work or check their work or who knows what. But it's always beneficial to talk to the decision maker and the person or persons who are motivated to get the audit completed. No, can I disagree with that at all?
2: So at a minimum, you you want utility bills and you will not only just have them, but you'll process them and take a look at them before you go on site.
0: I can, yes. Yeah, they yeah. can obviously you know this tunic, but yeah, they can tell you a lot about the facilities. Yeah, no, no, I'm
2: I'm thinking about, you know, I'm kind yeah. of aggregating all of my experiences here and thinking about those times when, you know, I wasn't really at liberty to maybe, you know, I was working for a, a company or something and they told right. me you need to go out and audit these buildings next week or two weeks and then trying that I need these utility bills and contacting somebody and even to the point where you don't get it but you still have to go. Or you get it, and it's a box, you know, of papers with multiple account numbers, and it's going to take you maybe a week or more. People to process this, and you don't even know what's in these buildings yet. So I kind of, I don't know, and maybe it was because I was forced to, you know, go out and look at buildings without utility bills to understand. Okay, there's not one concrete way to do this. I can go out there, not knowing too much about their energy, but I will get a good sense of their physical plan. And then when we get bills, we can look at that. Right. Again, some people may say that's completely backwards, but I'm just telling you what reality is sometimes. Mm -hmm. And as much as I'd like to say, you know, I'm not stepping in your facility until I get all this information, you know, there is a give and take there. And
0: some, some information you don't necessarily care about and you could spend a lot of time looking at it. Well, I suppose as an owner, they may not want to give you all that information until they know you're kind of a credible uh, entity. So.
1: Well, I think though, Nick, your business model is a little different than ours. We typically work directly for an owner, not necessarily for ESCOs. And in the cases where we do work for ESCOs, if they say go audit it and you don't need to see the utility bills Hey, I don't care. Spring wound and coin operated, right? You want us to go out at the building? Happy to go out at the building. But in the instance where we're working directly for the owner, it is, you know, it's valuable to both parties for them to provide the utility data in advance. Because if if you come back after calculating the EUI ECI it's It's beneficial to be able to tell an owner, hey, you're already in the seventy eighth percentile. do you just recognize that right out of the chute and we want to set the set the stage that we're coming to audit the building. So far, whatever you're doing must be halfway good, either that or you're letting your your occupants swelter in the summer and freeze in the winter. But we'll audit the building, but here's where we at where we are at as a starting point.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. stepping kind of back into where we were a little bit then tools, right? What do you, what else would you bring on site? Mark, I know I mentioned, you know, your notepad, your flare, your meter, your PPE. Again, you know, knowing it's a site, a initial walkthrough.
1: A regular camera, presumably okay, yeah. you get a, a camera mm-hmm. permit, you know, many, many facilities that we work in. It takes some work to get a camera permit, but that's very valuable. Notepad, yep. The tablet, a tablet PC is valuable. The copies of the the uh, checklists or the um, inventory list of equipment, so that we can be efficient on the project. Survey
0: say, each piece of equipment. Yeah, right.
1: Let's go. Let's go. You know, do a walk by on each of these major pieces of equipment to determine a) are they in service, what their maintenance condition, you know, what the condition mm-hmm. is, have they been maintained. Are there maintenance records, and that's another thing that, depending on what the equipment is, how big it is, especially in the place where we go to a cogeneration site or someplace else that has a you know their own prime movers that are significant, you want to see the maintenance records on those because they are so vital in terms of the impact on energy consumption
2: now as far as my tool bag goes, I think that has changed wildly since I started, probably early on I would I would be the guy with a large bag. Right. Try to carry that around. And it went through different phases. But now I would say I'm going to throw out one of the a piece of equipment, I'll call it, which I think is underutilized and not often thought of. Good old-fashioned handkerchief. And I'll tell you why. Because those rooms can get pretty hot and sweaty and tunnels. That's one thing. But you're always wiping down something and looking at nameplates or doing something like that. And I've seen and so many people being doing audits and they don't really have anything to wipe down equipment with and to look you know, wipe the grease off a nameplate on a pump and really check because right, that's really important too, because you yeah. can look at some pumps and go, oh my goodness, that's got to be a 40 horsepower pump, but it's just really old. It's only 10 horsepower and that yeah. can make a big difference. And a lot of the facilities I've dealt with, they don't have. You know a master updated list of equipment and schedules, and even for their major chillers and boilers. So you're really left to go look right at it and say, "This is what you have." So cleaning up equipment that's that's my vote for the number one uh, underutilized tool out there. But if I had to go out there, I'd have a headlamp, right? Not a flashlight, mm-hmm. yep. and a handkerchief, uh, an adjustable wrench, and a screwdriver with both types of heads and I think you could get by with your basic and again we're talking about a basic site walkthrough right I may be taking some temperature measurements or something Mm -hmm. and you know if I did a lot of schools with uh, natatoriums and bring a sling psychrometer and things like that but other than that I think you gotta you gotta move pretty light too yeah and that's also one thing you know, early on, I remember having a plan of this is how I want to. And after you do some audits, you're thinking, OK, next time I want to do it like this. But oftentimes, depending on who is your escort, you know, you just kind of get flying through things. So, you know, I went through a period where I used a lot of forms, right? I had all these forms printed out and it just and in my mind, OK, if I could direct this and say, you know, I want to start in a boiler plant and work my way up. Then the forms all kind of made sense. But if I let somebody else, the facility person just kind of lead me around different places, which is sometimes how it has to go. Right. And you have to be kind of flexible and adaptable. So my sequenced and numbered list of forms didn't really quite work out then. And I'd find myself either using a voice recorder, which is handy too. But again, some facilities, you're not allowed to use that, but pen and paper and multiple pens and
1: pencils too one of the things nick and and i love the handkerchief idea and i usually carry one anyway but that's absolutely true on some large audits where we did have camera permits i used a head-mounted gopro and i have to tell you that was a that was a huge enhancement to just walking through with a notepad because you can talk And it's, you know, everything that you're looking at, it's recording and you can go back and, and review it and, you know, typical notes, reminder to self, blah, blah, blah. And you go back and say, oh yeah, I saw that thing. And, uh, let's do a little more research on that piece of equipment. So that's a thought too. That is
2: the perfect combination, but it seems like that would violate the no camera pass
1: Oh, I agree. Yeah, you have to have a camera pass. If you can't get a camera pass, well, that will never work. But if you can, that's uh, pretty pretty nice. And actually, uh, even in industrial plants, sometimes you can get a camera pass, but there are specific components to their process that you would not be allowed to photograph. So you have to be watchful about where you go and when you use it
2: sure but pictures are invaluable when it comes down and i know you know you, you go through your your first building maybe in a day and you know you're, you're making notes and you're thinking you're going to remember this and oh yeah and by the time you get to your 10th or 11th you know boiler plan of the day and your, your notes get kind of confusing so relying on either just the written notes and if you do that which is good But I would just urge people, just take your time. And I used to feel very rushed, like, especially if I had an escort that I wanted to take some notes, but I also felt at the same time I had to make conversation and keep him or her moving too. But I think in hindsight, and a lot of times I would have just slowed down and said, no, I want to make sure I've got my notes here. So I don't have to think on this later and try to remember if I'm thinking about the right plant. And if you can't take pictures, then you're drawing sketches and schematics of how piping is laid out and things like that, and that's fine too, but it's very hard to recreate that after a full day of notes.
0: And it takes time. I mean, obviously, sometimes the way piping is laid out, it takes a little bit of time to say, okay, this goes here and here and here, piled around it and what have you. So definitely easy it's
1: debris debris yeah. is piled around the clay.
0: debris oh yeah this is a uh, a family friendly podcast i'm gonna have to <laughs> beep that out <laughs> but i think you know as as a listener after hearing both of your inputs some people might be changing up their tool toolkits a little bit for first sight walkthroughs this was that was very insightful well, if I could get more people to
2: carry handkerchiefs, I think it would be a, a better world. You got
0: one more person today. Yes, that's so one good. more person Very today. Indispensable. Yep. You know how many times I pocket knife scrubbed on a freaking nameplate, and then I'm like, "Oh, well, now my hands dirty. Now what? Yeah. Now Use I can't your shirt wear it. sleeve. Yeah. Oh, well, geez. Nope. That's genius. I like it. Well, that might be kind of strong, Clayton.
2: (laughs) It's genius. I didn't invent the thing. It is use it. But I think, I think the takeaway, maybe there's a lot of different ways to approach it, but Mm -hmm. Mark is completely right. I agree. Statements about time is valuable. And if you don't, I guess communicate that in one way or another to a potential customer or client. Well, then your time will be treated that way, like it's not important. And the fact is, it is because you're out there doing this and you need to take it serious. The more prepared you go into a situation, I think the better you always are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, preparation, but then you have to be ready to encounter a lot of unknowns when you're out there in the field.
0: And that's a reality, too. You don't know exactly what you're going to see. Well, the facility might not either. I mean, I can imagine there's a lot of places that think, oh, this is how it is. And you, you show up and you're like completely different than what somebody said it, how it was, if it's, you know, layout equipment, anything, things change a lot. Oh and yeah. It's not always documented. So definitely. It's very true. So we, we know what information we need prior to arriving on site? We know what tools we'll bring, right? Who? Who comes on the site walkthrough generally with us now?
1: Well, like Nick, Nick alluded to earlier, there would be an escort typically of some kind, whether it's, uh, you know, we've been on projects where the escort has no clue about anything about the facility, except they're supposed to take you on a walkthrough yep. up to where it could be a facilities manager or an operations person who has direct hands-on experience with the facility and equipment. But uh, when it's possible... Generally, on the first day, I would really, really like to have the owner stakeholder who has an objective in mind, go on the walkthrough. So as Nick said, you have the opportunity to ask questions, get more specifics, understand at a detailed level what the intent is. Nick's done enough walkthroughs and audits, and I've done enough walkthrough and audits that we know what to expect. but the part that is generally more unknown is what are the business metrics that are driving this activity. And that's what I'm really interested in.
2: And those are some things that you could discover without walking around with the the director of plant operations though. I agree. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm going back through kind of my experience and I agree with you. It ranges from, you know, people that had uh, no idea that there was mechanical equipment behind this door uh to people that were just insanely knowledgeable about it. Right. And I think you could maybe categorize people based on the, the the market or the industry they're in. You know, industrial people seem to be much more in tune and understand the impact of the physical plant and the things they may not be able to see, how important they are to production and product quality, where maybe in K through 12 schools and kind of know that some schools are brand new and other ones are extremely old and resources spread very thin there too. So that can be, you know, and that's the other part of understanding how knowledgeable is the person that is escorting you through their facilities. And some people just like all kinds of people, some people are very honest with what they don't know. Other people feel like they shouldn't, you know, make up things that just, they don't know, but they need to they act like they should know this information. Right. So you have to be careful about that too. You don't run with too much information, but I don't know if you're going to find in any type of facility these days, somebody that's just going to let you walk through their facilities and kind of find your own way around that did happen, believe it or not, in the schools. And it wasn't even that long ago. Wow. I remember going home at night with, uh, full set of keys to Baltimore city schools. And, you know, I'd be there for a week and they just give me a set of keys and show up at a building, sign in. And everything knew wow. that just take your time and walk through. And yeah, quite a bit different. And it really was not that long ago, but and rightfully so it's changed, but I don't think anybody's going to let you walk through their manufacturing plant
1: like that. Oh yeah. At least not on the first walkthrough.
0: Yeah. It's got to make it kind of challenging in a way though. There's so many door, you know, unopened doors and this and that to go through to find some of this mechanical equipment. I can not imagine walking through yourself trying to find your way to all of this, but sometimes I
2: preferred it to be honest with you. If, really if your escort was not knowledgeable. Yep. And they just, you know, kind of wanted to chit chat about things that weren't really related, complain about whatever, then it was kind of a deterrent to your time. And if they didn't add any value to it, then I would have preferred that, especially if you do have floor plans, right? And I'm I'm thinking high schools, elementary schools, where pretty sure I could find my way to a boiler plant on one of those schools pretty easily. Floor plans, you know, an egress plan, that's all you're looking for, those things that are on the wall. And that can give you a lot of insights into, and you can kind of figure out, hey, there should be a mechanical rumor out here. Like, where's this air coming from? Yep. And so you can figure out a lot there, but different places, yeah. Like a hospital, I would never want to. If they said, Yeah, here's
0: keys, go roam. Mm-hmm. I'd say, no, I'll come back when you guys have time, yeah. you know, without a doubt. Right. This just kind of came to my, my thought. How how often it walking through with an escort or a facilities person? I have to imagine you have to be, I don't know what the right word to be, tactful in a way too. Do you often find Facilities people that are a little, um, I don't want to say they, they, feel, they, they feel betrayed or they have their own opinion. You know, they have their opinion about you coming in and telling them what they haven't done. Right. Or at least that's how they see it. You know, is, is that often a struggle? Story time. It's story time. <laughs> <laughs> so we
1: did a uh, uh, facility audit at a big hospital. Big. Huge steam boiler plant that the director of operations. Now these are these are conventional boilers, okay? No heat recovery, right? Uh, steam boilers that he was insistent that the plant in its entirety was eighty-eight percent efficient. I said, okay, based on what numbers? Well, here's what we we get. Here's what we make in terms of steam. Okay. Where's your primary steam meters? Uh, You know, he showed me the meters. I said, well, when's the last time you had those calibrated? Oh, we calibrate them every month. I said, what do you calibrate them against? Each other. Hmm, okay. And um, where's your condensate or your makeup water meter uh, right here? Okay. So if you're making up basically 35% of your makeup, which is a relatively high number even for a hospital, What's happening to the, uh, to the balance of your condensate? Well, we know there's a leak. I said, what, what do you mean a leak? You mean, uh, and you can look at the hospital and see the steam venting up through the roof. Right. It's, it's bad traps. He was insistent that there was a lake underneath the hospital where all of his condensate was draining to. Him. And I'm not kidding. I mean, this is like uh you know tinfoil hat stuff that you know all that water is down there, and um yeah, there's just nothing we can do about it because the uh, the three main condensate lines run underneath the foundation of the hospital hmm okay, none of that is physically possible
2: i'm I'm curious what your response
1: was was it that just a... Uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> Got to be kind of tactful, right? You can't you do. <laughs> I, I sat there for probably 20 seconds with a blank expression on my face. Like, I don't even know how to respond to this. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I put it in our report that per the operations, there is a, a reservoir underneath the hospital where the condensate is draining to, but went back and basically did a, a heat and energy balance on the steam plant that said that, that's not real. Yeah, no, um, it's just blowing out your roof. And stuff. Blowing out the roof. <laughs> if you told me there was a giant cloud over your hospital, I might be more inclined to believe you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, what was your what was your question before we got into story time? Well, it's just I can imagine some facilities and operations people find. uh you know when when we come through for a site walkthrough, they might get a little. Uh, Territorial, or whatever you want to call it, they they don't really want to share information. They think what they're doing is fine, and they're right. And
2: oh, absolutely, you know, it's or, a, you got to
0: go through it tactfully. I can imagine you can't say, "Oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong," or else they won't want to show you maybe where some important stuff is. I don't know. Well, and I will tell you that the
2: flip side of that is that there's a lot of great information that's buried true. in a facility. Yep, that people have not been listened to. Maybe because that guy Mark knows they're told one person that there's a invisible Lake, you know, under his yep. facility and they don't listen to anything else he says, but he may have good ideas about something mm-hmm. and they don't even either have that opportunity or that voice. But mm-hmm. then it could also be that they don't want you to rat out their the poker table they have down in the boiler room. And obviously an active yep. card game that happens there periodically. Yep. And so it is, It can be a balancing act, but you're there to kind of focus on, okay, how do we make these facilities run more efficiently, which obviously benefits everybody and better for them to operate. But uh, there is, and there can be the uh, thought of, oh, you're looking at maybe putting in some new building automation controls. Oh, does that mean you're not going to need me anymore? That sort of stuff. Yep. But. Again, it depends on the sophistication of the facilities department and of the individual people
1: and their experience. Uh, very wide ranging. Yeah, you can imagine. Well, that is a good point, Nick. And, you know, when we find, and there are great, great many talented, skilled people that have very good ideas, and, and we are very open with them. Listen. I would like your list of ideas and and let me just tell you that what typically happens, this is in talking with maintenance or operations, we're outside experts. So where you can't get traction just by virtue of us being so-called outside experts, we can put some sensibility to the numbers, definition of the project and things that you've been trying to get funded, we can help you get them funded. And that is a, in and of itself, a, a, a big, bonding issue with uh, maintenance and operations totally
2: agree and there needs to be some conversation i think when you start that process just about that this is or can be a cooperative type of effort and because if they don't really know what you're there about then they can make their assumptions too just the same where you can make assumptions about them based on any number of things and it's not entirely fair and we ought to all know by now that People and places can surprise us when you least expect it. I agree.
0: So, moving forward, then, what are from your guys' opinions? What are some big takeaways when you are finished with your, you know, first site walkthrough? What do you want to leave with? Uh,
1: even as I'm going through the through the facility, I'm developing a mental list of potential conservation measures. Mm-hmm. Basically. Especially for things like heat recovery or in an industrial plant, where are they using expensive energy, whether that's steam, whether it's compressed air, high temperature, anything is expensive. So I'm developing that list of conservation measures that range from okay, if this was a mega project that's this big, if they want to do, you know, if we have financial constraints that we're looking at XXX straight line payback whole different spectrum of projects all the way down to operations and maintenance items that you know could be fix your compressed air leaks let's tighten up the dampers we need to have um, maintenance done on the HVAC equipment so very high level but broad brush here's kind of the things we're looking at now do I have a definitive list and have I done any probably no calculations or anything like that but by the right. time I leave I have a my, my potential list as well as where I'll need more information and where I'm just going to devote a paragraph or two in the report to, you should do these things because not only are they good for the you know indoor environment, but they're also, they'll also improve efficiencies some amount.
2: And, and while Mark's right that you're not necessarily putting dollars next to certain conservation measures or costs to it, you do have to keep I guess an eye on that and a good energy auditor has some experience with cost estimating and actual, you know, construction of these things. And mm-hmm. there was times early on that I would go to buildings and say, these, these boilers are, you know, incredibly old and they've got to be incredibly efficient. We need to get them out and it's going to save them a lot of money. And then the project manager might visit the site. This is very early on. And he would say, Nick, this whole, uh, building was built around these boilers, you know, there's no way to really get them out easily. It's gonna be a major effort, which makes your no brainer, you know, kind of a big deal. Yep. And the same thing with, and I see it to this day with other people, and I see projects recommended for VAV conversion of air handling units, but there's just no way to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, Without it being a major construction effort impacting all the occupied areas in the building, and sometimes then they settle for, you know, kind of a, well, we'll we'll do VAV, but we'll just limit it to the mechanical room, which doesn't really do it. So it is important that you keep an eye on the constructability issues as you're going through, but, you know, a prioritized list of things. Yeah. You know, then usually mm-hmm. going from here's the best chances of a successful project lighting to here's some more ambitious type of things that you might want to, we might want to explore.
0: Makes sense to me. And I, I completely agree go through, you have your mental list of what you can do. You know, you generally know what some, what it costs to implement some of these ECMs, what some general paybacks would be based on equipment size and put it together. Start from there. And that kind of brings us sort of to wrapping up this episode, I would say, unless you guys have any more, any reservations or anything to add to this. I, we kind of cut, co- we covered everything we really wanted to. This is a longer episode. <laughs> But I think a good one. I think we put a lot of valuable information into this podcast, into something that seems that could seem extremely obvious or simple. There's a lot involved in it and there's a lot to think about and, you know, going from tools to people to what to look for, what to do. And I think we covered it very well. I'm I'm going to add,
1: what do you typically bring to the walkthrough? Be prepared to be productive on this walkthrough. Don't waste any time. I, I would say if, if you're not in the middle of downtown and close proximity to a place to eat, bring a lunch, bring a cooler, and just be ready to do your job for the entire day. Right. Not, don't take a lot of time to get ready to get ready. You need to, there's a lot to cover. I don't care how big or how small a facility is to do an energy audit. Right. You need to be productive. So get on site and do your job and try and be as productive as you can for both from both your perspective and from the owner or contractor's perspective.
0: Yeah. I know we talked about not wasting people's time. Obviously there's, it goes both ways too. You don't want to be the one wasting the facilities guys time, taking a long lunch or getting, you know, getting your butt in gear or anything. So. I would add this if I may for the, you know, any younger
2: auditors out there no matter how much experience you have or don't have you need to be confident that you know you are the energy professional that's being called into this facility or these facilities so again going back to something i touched upon if you know your approach is we're going to start in the boiler room and you're going to work your way up to the penthouse right and cover the ventilation system in between and you'll see lighting and all that kind of stuff as you're walking through then don't be derailed when you're poster or your escort says let's start in mechanical room 32 because it's right here you know and in a way you have to be able to say well is it all right I'd like to start in a boiler room and here's why because a lot of times that can give you a lot of, a much more informed picture of that mechanical room you know if you're not asking like well where does this hot water come from well down in the boiler we got this and we got some heat exchangers and blah 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 and it's a lot better if you're going to start with that methodical approach, especially if you're visiting a number of buildings and probably with a different person at each one, it is good to have kind of a system of here's how I would like to digest this building and, and, and get to know it more and understand it. And, and a the process there does help.
0: Well, and I think as a, somebody with an engineering background, obviously you're coming in as an energy guy, you have some sort of engineering background, you're, you A lot of people think very structured and it helps your mind. That's the structure you want to come at it as instead of bouncing around. So I agree with that completely. Worthy note added. Excellent. But cool, guys. I think we'll wrap it up here. For the listeners, thanks for tuning in. I know this is a longer episode. We covered a lot. Hope you liked our, our little intro talking about home energy. And stay tuned for the next episode. We'll be discussing the energy audit process. So thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day.